WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be opening the word of God and addressing questions that our callers and those who email us have, that maybe you've been studying the Bible and there's a challenging passage that you'd like to discuss with us or an issue that you're looking for biblical counsel, all you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally. The number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number, and that number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Uh, Some prefer to go on live, and of course, we give them the highest priority. But many want to ask a question and want to remain anonymous, and you can simply dictate the question. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp. Dot net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of calls that have come in and uh, dictated their questions, so let's get to them. Okay. Paula from Beaufort writes, My mother died 21 months ago after 64 years of marriage to my father. My father is a believer and will be 90 years old soon. His mind is sharp, but he's been so broken since my mother's passing, he misses her so much, and he is lonely. He met an 84-year-old Christian lady at the retirement community where he lives, and she wants to marry my father. My father is reluctant to marry again because he's only known the lady around five months, and he's afraid of it upsetting my sister and me. All right. Well, let me see if I can respond. Um, Certainly, there's no direct prohibition against remarriage after the death of a spouse. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 7. He said, if a woman marries while her husband is alive... Uh, she's considered an adulteress. But if her husband dies, though she be joined or married to another man, she's not an adulteress. Why? Because death breaks the marriage covenant. Um, So, you know, I would just say legally, biblically, he has a right, but I would probably discourage it at this point. Uh, Certainly, your dad could enjoy this woman's company in an honorable way without marrying her. And he probably feels a sense of loneliness, Uh, A lot of people do in their older age, and uh, one way that God meets that loneliness need sometimes is through fellowship with other people, but certainly he needs to consider the fact that if he chooses to marry her, then biblically he takes responsibility for her, and if he precedes her in death, then he would have a moral obligation to make sure that he's left some of his inheritance behind for her, and potentially even for her adoptive children. Uh, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children. And so when he joins into a new family and starts a new family unit, with it comes responsibility. And so if he's prepared to do that, then he certainly could marry without violating Scripture. 
But I would ask, on the other hand, as a pastor, why is she so insistent? Um, and having only known her for five months is not very long. Uh, very often, I think people make some bad decisions after the loss of a spouse. And so they may be 40 or they may be 80. It doesn't matter. Uh, but they can make some unwise decisions. Many times they make it out of grief and they just need to pause and stop. And many times I say, look, don't make any major decisions, life decisions in the next 12 months. Just go, just go slow, catch your breath here and uh, don't run ahead of God. Uh, but unfortunately, many times people do that. And yes, uh, he may be very lonely, but God can still fill those needs without a marriage. And sometimes um, God fills that need through a break at, a broken heart that leads to death. And, and then it's followed by a reunion in heaven where there is no loneliness. But I, I think wisdom would dictate in this particular situation, as you describe it, since number one, he's uncomfortable and his children are uncomfortable. That's enough right there to say no. You know, Paul reminds us in first Timothy chapter five, um, you know, he makes a statement. If one does not provide for his own, he is worse than an unbeliever. Let me just read that because it's one that's often quoted uh, but often misquoted. He, he's talking about widows. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed. What's a widow indeed? Well, among other things, they don't have any children or grandchildren who can take care of them. But if they have children or grandchildren, then those are the people who are to practice piety in regard to their family and, and make what Paul says, some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Um, and so he, he makes a statement that there was a time when we were young, when our parents cared for us, but then the role will often reverse where we care for them. And it's in that context where he says, if one does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the passage is not looking down parents caring for their children, though that is indeed a legitimate application. It's looking upward, uh, children caring for their parents. And sometimes that's not just physically, but emotionally. And so I think your emotional counsel uh, would say, dad, you don't, you don't need to marry this lady. You can spend time with her in an honorable way, but you don't need to marry her. And the fact that you have reservations is enough reason not to marry her. Whatever is not from faith, the Bible says is sin. So I always tell people a good principle, good rule of thumb, when in doubt, cut it out. Don't, don't do it. And so you have some real reservations. Don't, don't pursue a marriage relationship with her. And if she wants to keep pressuring you in that direction, then you should seek companionship or fellowship with someone else, but not with her. Um, anyway, I hope that helped. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Are you there? Yeah, go ahead. You're you're coming through now. Okay. I'm caught in a reference to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Okay. Uh, where it states, uh, for if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Uh, first of all, I don't believe a true believer can lose his salvation. Um, but in the context, as the Hebrew writer is writing, he writes, if we, um, he's primarily writing, well, I know he's writing to the Jewish converts back then, and he's laying a premise for them going back to the old covenant law. He was trying to warn them about doing that. 
I just want you to give some more understanding about that verse. Well, you're reading very perceptively just by the fact that you acknowledge the first person plural pronoun, if we. So the author is including himself in this. If we, as believers, and you know, obviously, this writer of Scripture is a born-again Christian, and he, you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So God gives a warning to his people, to those who are born again. Uh, in fact, there's a number of warnings, five, maybe six, depending on how you count them in the book of Hebrews. This is one of the warning passages. And they're very, very sobering passages that carry increased um, consequence through disobedience. Earlier in the book, he illustrates with those who came to Kadesh Barnea and how when they came to the edge of the promised land, uh, in unbelief, they chose not to go in. And of course, uh, Moses brought the consequences from God. And so the next day they wanted to, quote unquote, repent and say, oh, we're wrong, Moses, forgive us and let God forgive us. And we need to go into the promised land. And God said, no, 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 you're not going in. There's a consequence, a disciplinary consequence for your sin. Well, they tried to go in anyway, and the consequences were grave. Uh, they were they were slaughtered. Um, and so God gives warnings through the book of Hebrews, not to those who are lost, but to those who are saved. And you're right, the writer of the Hebrews himself affirms eternal security. So there are passages in the book of Hebrews that teach, quote, unquote, once saved, always saved. That expression that we use to defend the doctrine of eternal security. And so scripture must interpret scripture. But there is a point and there are numerous illustrations in scripture where we can go beyond the patience of God, even as his own children. So Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, if I can illustrate with other scripture, warns in the fact that these were people who were habitually coming to the Lord's table, uh, partaking of the very elements that were symbolic of the price that was paid for our salvation, but they were doing it in a way where their heart was not clean and clear, and yet they participated. And Paul said, look, um, for this reason, a number of you are weak and sick, and some of you are asleep, or you could say are dead. That's the thought behind the word that's used there in 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 30. I'm quoting it from memory, and let me turn there. But then he says, um, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, and so he exhorts us when we come to the Lord's table not to be in some unconfessed, unrepentant attitude, especially when you're holding the very elements that remind us that we've been bought with a price and we're not our own. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, Paul says of the Corinthians there who should have dealt justly with a man who is living in sexual immorality and they refuse to do nothing. He said, you, you should have removed him from your midst. But then he says in 5.3, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though he were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's an example of someone who's committed a sin onto what we would call physical death, as First John 5 points out at the end of that chapter, 
There's a sin that leads to death. Why? Uh, and Paul says, you don't pray for this person. They've, they, they've come beyond that point, or John says, they've come beyond that point where God is just dealing with them and he's dealing with them in the ultimate way. He's dealing with them with uh, physical discipline. He's dealing with them in the ultimate discipline. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Um, and so he's talking about prayer and who we should pray for and who we shouldn't. And, and so that's what Hebrews 10 is really talking about. He's talking about the Christian who can no longer come and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. He's not talking about eternal salvation or eternal forgiveness because the Bible makes a distinction between positional, relational forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. First John 1, 9 is written to those who have already been saved not to be saved again when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He's not dealing with relational forgiveness, but he says earlier in the chapter, I'm writing these things that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son. He's talking about intimacy with the Lord, not union, but communion. And that's what this text is dealing with. A Christian can reach a point like these Christians did where they were really denying by the things they did to avoid persecution by going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system to look Jewish so people wouldn't boycott their businesses and beat up on them as followers of Jesus. They were in essence by their activity, by their becoming secret service messianic Christians, um, bringing the judgment of God. And God says there was a point of no return as he's already illustrated in this chapter like with the peril of unbelief in Hebrews 3 in one of the earlier warning passages in the book. Like he's already said earlier in the book, not of those who reject salvation, but those who neglect their salvation. And so, you know, we talk about the fun side of God today and how he's blessed me with this and how he's blessed me with that. And that's all well and good. But the beginning of of wisdom is to fear God. And the fear of God has been lost in the church today. It's become a narcissistic uh, evangelical church. And pastors uh, preach narcissistic sermons, so self-centered. I heard a a sermon by this guy, Perry Noble, recently. I was about ready to throw up when I was done. It was so self-centered, such an abuse of the text of God's word Um, in taking a passage that was Christ-centered, making it man-centered. No wonder he's bringing in thousands of people and is now the largest church in South Carolina. It's not by accident. It's a different message. It's a Joel Osteen type of message. It's the wrong message. And we have false prophets in our day who are preaching a different gospel. Anyway, good question. I think we have another caller who's waiting. Let's go on to them. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Fergie. Hey, thanks for calling. How can we help? And with the movie, left, the new movie Left Behind that came out, it started a lot of conversation about the tribulation and the rapture. And I, I, Pastor Larry actually gave me a, a book on theology, and it explained it a little bit to me. But uh, I just wanted to hear from you, Pastor Brogy. Why do people—I I believe, as, as you've taught us, in a pre-tribulation rapture, what, what gives people— the idea that there would be a mid-tribulation or even a post-tribulation rapture? Well, it's a good question. Um, The mid-tribulational view is almost non-existent today, though there are some people um, who who hold it, but very, very few. 
uh, people typically either hold to a pre-trib or to a post-trib or to a no-trib rapture. I suppose we should underscore that as, as well. There are some people who are amillennial in their theology. They don't believe there's a coming millennial kingdom where Jesus will literally rule and reign upon the earth, where the promises he made to Israel will be kept. And so they have to take a lot of the passages of the Old Testament and spiritualize them, allegorize them. And so for them, the next big rapture, the word rapture is is a theological catchword. It's from a Latin term, the Greek word, we shall all be caught up harparzo in the Latin is rapto. And so we get our word rapture. And so uh, it's a good theological world that that summarizes a biblical truth. Some say, well, I don't believe in the rapture. Every Christian believes in the rapture. Um, that's just a statement of ignorance. If you believe in the catching up of the church, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Paul says the trumpet will sound. Uh, the voice of the archangel will, will be heard. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up and be with them. Um, so there's going to be a catching up. What the point of debate is, is how it takes place, when it takes place. And so for many in Reformed theology today, uh, they would say that there's no future for Israel. Uh, you have to abuse a lot of prophecy to come to that position. But they say the church is the new Israel. That's how they skirt around it. And um, and so the tribulation and the repentance of Israel, that, that, you know, that's already passed. It's historical, took place in the first century. There's just one big event, the catching up of the church that happens at the second coming. Those are the no rapture people in, in, and uh, the no the no trib people, so to speak, and that the trib has already taken place. So there is the. Um, midpoint, which is virtually non-existence, as I said, and then there's the post and the pre. Uh, there are post-tribulationists says that Christ comes at the end of the tribulation, and then he rules and reigns. The problem with that is there's a number of verses in the Bible that would defy that, and a number of verses that become impossible to interpret when, um, in terms of a plain interpretation, uh, when you come to a post-tribulation position. Uh, And again, you know, this is why it's important that we're consistent in the way we interpret even prophecy. And so there are some people like uh, St. Augustine, who, when it came to prophecy, at least in reference to the second coming, he adopted an allegorical interpretation. It's all allegory. It's not literal. Well, he didn't do that with the prophecies concerning the first coming. Why should he do that with the prophecies concerning the second coming? Because they don't know what to do with the Jewish people. And Augustine, of course, said some very embarrassing things over the Jewish people. When you go into Yad Vashem uh, in Israel, the Holocaust Museum there, or in D.C., and you see all these statements posted by Augustine, whom you'll meet in heaven, um, it's embarrassing. Um, And so he took an allegorical approach to interpreting, say, the passages of the Revelation, some take a um, preterist approach. They say, that, well, it's all history. That really, the, the correct way to approach it is a futuristic approach, that chapters 4 through 19 are future. They are looking at a future time that is yet to be fulfilled. So even in the messages that uh, Christ gave to the various churches, and he addressed seven different churches, and 
He spoke, uh, you know, to the church at Ephesus that was a preoccupied church, and he spoke to Smyrna that was, you know, under deep persecution, Pergamum that was really political in their outlook and their approach to things, Thyatira, a rich, prosperous church, uh, Sardis that was, a, a, they had no power. They were a powerless church. And then when he comes to Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia, Philadelphos, the city of brotherly love. We have an American city named after it. Um, He makes an interesting statement. Um, He says, but you have kept the word of my perseverance. So I call them a persevering church. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who will dwell upon the earth. Remember, God's not on the same timetable that we are. For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like, uh, you know, a day. And so God speaks with a sense of uh, imminency in the New Testament, and he's speaking from an eternal viewpoint. He's at the door. His coming is at hand. Paul wrote with the expectation that he could be involved in the rapture. Uh, the catching up of the church, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. Well, that didn't happen in Paul's life. But was he wrong for speaking with that ex, 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 you know, expectant spirit? No, not at all. Why? Because there's nothing prophetically that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to take place. But there's never been a time in human history when there has been a time of testing that has come upon the whole world. This time of testing that it's going to come upon the whole world is unfolded beginning in Revelation 4 through the book in this series of judgments that God is going to bring. The seal, uh, the, the, the trumpet, and the bold judgments of God. So um, you have to, a lot of it, how, how do they come to a post-tribulational view? Well, sometimes it's driven by just the way they are handling the scripture and they're not consistent. And again, there are some positions that are impossible to hold in a post-tribulational view. You can't hold to a literal transla- translation or excuse me, interpretation of revelation and hold to a post-tribulational view. For instance, if the church is all caught up at the end of the tribulation, if we're all caught up and we receive a resurrected body, then we have to make a U-turn, come back to earth. And when we come back to earth, um, we're all in our resurrected bodies. We neither marry nor are given marriage. So who are those who at the end of the millennial, when the devil who's been locked up for a thousand years and is loosed, who is he going to tempt if we've had no children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. There's no one. And so only the pre-tribulational view takes makes sense. The church is caught up. He first comes for his saints. He meets us in the air, but then he comes back with his saints. Where, As Zechariah says, he literally comes to the earth. His feet touch the Mount of Olives. His feet land on the Mount of Olives. And... He then ultimately rules and reigns for a thousand years. And those who have been won to Christ during the Great Tribulation, who enter the millennium in their natural bodies, and yet in a world where the curse has been lifted, where, um, you know, the, the, the baby is next to the cobra's nest, the, the lamb is next to the wolf, and he's unharmed, 
so forth, for, for, for those promises will be literally fulfilled. The curse is lifted off of the creation, and they're able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It's the only way you can interpret it is literally. The plain interpretation of Scripture will lead you to a pre-tribulational view on how God is going to return. Good question. Let's go to the next. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener says, while listening to WAGP last week, I heard an author, Warren Smith, and the host, discussing his new book, Another Jesus Calling, stating that the original book, Jesus Calling, is filled with New Age philosophy. I'm concerned, since this book, Jesus Calling, is used by many women I know, even those in positions of ministry leadership. I recently bought it on their advice. What is your advice concerning using this devotional? Well, I'm not real excited about it, obviously. Um, if you read Search the Scriptures and you go, if you go to searchthescriptures.org and you click at the top of the page, blog, I haven't written many blogs. I need to write some more, I suppose. But at the top of the page, if you click blog and you scan down, I think three or four years ago, uh, when this book came out in its early print, I wrote an article on Jesus Calling. And um, I saw the book. I first saw the book when my wife uh, had been given a copy as a Christmas gift by a member. I thought, oh, that's a, I mean, the book itself was just attractive, at least the early editions. I don't know if they're still uh, putting it in the binding, but it was a really nice binding. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a beautiful looking book. And uh, the way they binded it, and I just kind of flipped it open out of curiosity, and I started reading the introduction. And um, I thought, this is just heresy. Uh, And that was my wife's first reaction. She said, this is really shaky. Uh, Maybe that was a little bit of an overstatement to call the woman heretical because her husband's a born-again Christian. He's a pastor. Uh, I think they both, if I remember, went to Covenant Seminary. Uh, she's a believer, you'll meet her in heaven, but she's peddling heresy and heresy many times sells books. And so, <laughs> excuse me, she, um, she actually tells you that the idea in her introduction is not unique to her, that she had read a book called God Calling, uh, which is basically new age. And it's where people basically channel Jesus Uh, They listen and they sit down and they write and they take notes over what God is saying to them and speaking to them and and how he's communicating to them. That's that's bad. That is really, 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 really bad. And she talks about how fulfilled she had become through this whole process. Well, you know, if I remember um, in the introduction, she talks about how she had been a counselor and this and that. And I thought, well, maybe maybe some of your lack of fulfillment is you're out of the will of God. She was, you know, working a full-time job. Uh, she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing as a worker at home. And maybe a lack of real fulfillment and satisfaction in her relationship with the Lord was the fact that she was out of fellowship with the Lord and out of the will of God. She should have known better as a pastor's wife that she should have been modeling the ideal. Nonetheless, she goes down this trail and and she channels Jesus and she writes things that, you know, Jesus is supposedly saying to her and communicating to her and and um, these written messages. What I find interesting is there's been so much. And, you know, again, I, I wrote about this. I don't remember what the date is on that blog, Rick. It's probably on there if you can pull it up. But 
I wrote this thing, I don't know, a long time ago. What is it? When did I write this thing? Okay, uh, March of 2012. And I think the book came out around December of 11, somewhere or in 2011 at some point. So it's been out here for a couple of years, my blog. But, you know, um, now they have actually altered the book because there's been so much railing on this book. Uh, so they take out the parts where she says, I got my ideas from God calling. Uh, why? Because anybody who reads that book know it's pure new age. So they did that because they didn't want to, you know, uh, have sales crash. And like any book that sells, they come up with, you know, multiple editions uh, and formats in which you can buy this so-called, you know, Jesus calling. And, and what she's basically saying, unfortunately, is that the scriptures are not sufficient. The scriptures are not sufficient for my life. So she said, you know, I, I know that God communicated with me in the Bible, but she says, I yearned for more. That's a paraphrase of what she said. I yearned for more. Well, why did she yearn for more? Is not the word of God sufficient? James Montgomery Boyce, who was a great pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church, he's in heaven now, died a few years back. And and he made an interesting statement before he died. He said, the real battle in our days, in our day, will not be for the reliability of Scripture. He's talking about within evangelicalism, but the sufficiency of Scripture. And I'm telling you, he hit the nail on the head. He's absolutely right. People are saying today, the Scriptures are not sufficient. And the seeker-sensitive movement is doing that in their narcissistic messages. They're not exegeting the Scriptures they're not doing exegesis. They're doing narcissus. They've taken the scriptures and they've manipulated them and made them man-centered, good feeling. And it's all about you. And that's what grows churches and fills seats. And in essence, their mishandling of the scripture is saying that what God plainly said is not sufficient. And then in all of this experiential theology, whether it's a Beth Moore who, you know, says God spoke to me in this way or Sarah Young. And they put the, in the first person, God's words in their mouth. That is so dangerous. But thousands, tens of thousands of women all across the country are gobbling up this stuff. Why? Because their pastors have not been faithful to open the word of God to them, to show them the sufficiency of scripture. They're babies in Christ. And like babies, they put things in their mouth that they shouldn't. They put things in their hearts that they should not. And they don't know any better. They're not being overtly evil. They're just being naive because they don't know any better. Read my blog at searchthescriptures.org. And all I do, by the time I get out of the introduction, I can't take any more. I just couldn't take any more. I thought, this, this book, I can't believe it. But listen, Thomas Nelson, they put it out. They're a compromised press. They're owned by HarperCollins now. HarperCollins owns Zondervan. They own Thomas Nelson, a division of Zondervan. They're putting out books on gay, homosexual lifestyle. You know, it's just, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But that's the state of the church today, where we are in America. And that's why we're, you know, we're, we're heading in the wrong direction. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Gina from Savannah writes, I heard on the news this morning, uh, this was a few weeks ago, um, 
a story about a lady who bakes cakes. I think this was actually before you uh, had a message regarding this. About a lady who bakes cakes as a home business, and a lesbian couple asked her to bake their wedding cake. She told them she was unable to do this as it went against her Christian beliefs, and now the couple is suing her. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the situation. Should a Christian refuse to offer their services, or should they use it as an opportunity to reach this couple with the love of Christ? My first thought was that it wouldn't. I wouldn't want to bake a cake for them either, but then I thought about how I could be praying for that couple the whole time I was baking the cake. What are your thoughts? Well, your thought there at the end of your question, uh, Andy Stanley would say, amen, that's good, and that's what we need to do. Um, so there's one pastor's position. I take a different position. Um, I would say that what this lady did was good and it was right. Now, I'm not saying that we should be mean or ugly towards homosexuals. The most loving, kind, gracious, compassionate people towards people who are homosexual and gay ought to be born again Christians because we recognize, but by the grace of God, there goes I. And some people might say that was me and God saved me out of that lifestyle. You know, you read 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse says, and such were some of you. God can save anyone and everyone if he so chooses. But people must come God's way through the cross, through a genuine repentance or change of mind about sin, about the Savior, about the sovereign. And they come and they embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so here, it's not just a matter of baking a cake in this particular situation for a a homosexual couple. It was participating in a covenant relationship, which she knew was against and contrary to the word of God. It's like the couple up in New York State who own a beautiful barn on their property and there are businesses that come in and um, companies and schools and stuff, and they rent the barn and uh, they have parties and uh, it's a beautiful facility. And then uh, a couple came, a lady came and said, you know, I want to, I want to rent your, your barn for my marriage. Oh, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Da, 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 da. And well, I'll bring my, my girlfriend, of course, it's a woman calling and my fiance and we'll come and uh, we'll sign the contract. And she said, oh, well, we, we, we don't, do that for homosexual marriages. And so, of course, she immediately sued and she won. The state of New York fined that dear couple um, $13,000. This is just recent. And uh, I think like $10,000 went to um, the state and, and or to this couple for the hardship they have. And the other $3,000 uh, were was for mandatory so, so-called counseling that they had to receive. Well, what did they do? Well, they shut the business down. And if it comes to that, I would rather close my business and say, well, I'm no longer, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bake wedding cakes. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that if that's what it means. I, you know, I'll bake cookies and brownies and other, but I'm not baking wedding cakes, period. You know, and, and it's sad that that's where we are at. And this is why we, we need to have our voice heard. Uh, some of you have no plans to vote next week. You ought to vote. Uh, you should vote. You should be registered to vote. There are people who are on the side of evil who are running in different contests 
that many of God's people are going to do nothing about. Uh, Why? Because, well, I always vote Democrat or I always vote Republican. And yet that Republican or that Democrat is representing an evil. But they're going to watch out for me in Washington and they're going to make sure I still get my benefits. Yep, you're voting your pocketbook, you're voting your greed, you're voting your entitlement, you're not voting your conscience that's been set by the word of God. So that couple, they didn't vote their pocketbook, they said, we're closing down our business. Because if this is what it means under New York law, then we'd rather not be in business for this. That's what it takes. Um, But, you know, we're moving fast, and so, you know, we have a mayor in uh, Houston, who has sanctioned, you know, under a court mandate, hundreds of sermons by pastors for, you know, their review. Why? Because they want to see if they want if they can get us on a hate crime, on hate speech. Our speech should not be hateful. But if saying homosexuality is hateful in the government's eyes, then So it be. We have to say it and we may have to suffer the consequences because we have to be obedient. I hope it doesn't come to that. But when I said 20 years ago in a sermon, I felt like this is where we were going. People thought that that's just really kind of over overstepping your bounds, Pastor, to to make statements. I said, look, the path is clear. The sons of Issachar knew and understood their days And they acted accordingly. We need to understand the times we're moving at a ferocious rate into evil. And God's people need to speak up. Their voice needs to be heard. Uh, We're we're moving fast in the wrong direction. And what is most scary is the students who are in college campuses across our nation this morning. The 18 to 25 group. They don't think anything at all is wrong with homosexuality. Why? Because when you're involved in heterosexual immorality, you will quickly embrace homosexual immorality as being equally legitimate. And that's where our culture is. So um, the only hope is not political. Our biggest hope is spiritual. We need to be about preaching the gospel. Listen, we won't have candidates that we can even select that will represent our view five, ten years from now. That They'll be almost non-existent. You won't have anybody that you can vote for that even begins to represent your view. We're going to run out of those people if we don't start preaching the gospel and heralding the good news because it's only the gospel that can change a person's mindset. All right, we've got a live caller waiting, so let's go there, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Yes, how can I help? Uh, I was speaking with someone recently. They said that... uh, their pastor had mentioned that he was, and I guess the sermon mentioned that he was post-trib, and this friend I was talking to said they had to do a double tape, and he asked me about it, and I told him, of course, you know, and he's pre-trib, and I'm pre-trib, and he started talking, and uh, I thought about what you said one time about describing pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-trib, and correct me if I'm wrong, I thought I heard you say that not that you, you agree with it, you could understand people how they arrive at post-trib, but you, you do not believe that there's any way you can uh, come up with mid-trib. So I was wondering if you could explain that to me, all the three different uh, positions, and also is there a message where you go in and 
more detail on that. Yeah, let me let me um, let me respond to it. It's a good question, and this gives me an opportunity, a good reminder to direct people to searchthescriptures.org. It's our website, and a lot of messages that I've preached are there. And uh, we also have a course of study called the Institute for Biblical Studies, which quite a number of people in our church is taking advantage of. I know because I read their papers and their assignments and grade them accordingly. Um, And the Institute of Biblical Studies is basically a 33-hour course of study that people take, and uh, with it come assignments and books they have to read and papers they need to write and so forth. Uh, We're redoing one of those courses right now on Wednesday nights um, called Financial Freedom, and we're learning what the Bible says about money. In fact, we're going to start airing that on Thursdays at 11 in just a couple weeks here so that people who can't come on Wednesdays will be able to hear it. But one of the courses is a course on eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for, for last things. And in the course on eschatology, which I did over uh, like 50 Wednesday nights, so it's a long course. I think it may be next to the bibliology course, the longest course offered in the Institute of Biblical Studies. Um, But we deal with the issue of premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So you have to understand those three realms of theology first. And then amongst premillennialists, there are those who are pre-trib, pre-millennial, mid-trib, pre-millennial, and post-trib, pre-millennial. To summarize that, the pre-trib says that before the tribulation, the church will be removed, then the great tribulation will unfold, and at the end, before the millennial, Christ will return. That's all part of the second coming program. So he first comes for the church in the air, then he comes back to the earth and he rules and reigns. The mid-trib position says in the middle of the tribulation, because there is a basically a real change in how the wrath unfolds, that the, that the church will be caught up. Um, but I think it's important to understand that there's wrath in the first half of the tribulation. Just because it's like a rheostat and it increases doesn't mean that you're not in the tribulation. Certainly in the middle of the tribulation, Jesus said, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, which is dead center in the seven years, as Daniel the prophet underscores, and as Jesus unfolds there in the Olivet Discourse, then it really super gets bad. So some think, well, that's when the tribulation starts. There's problems with that view. I go through it. And then the post-trib says, no, we are through the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back he catches us up and we make a U-turn back to the earth. Again, um, what I would suggest is you go back and listen to those messages. You can see the titles. You don't have to listen to the whole course. But one of the sessions I deal with 10 reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And when I deal with mid-tribulationalism and post-tribulation, I go through their arguments and, uh, and I look at some of their reasons why they hold to those and where I think they're in error. So that's where I would point you, and I've got that resource, so I won't spend two hours on it here. Uh, let's go to the next question. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next uh, person actually dictated their question. Jan from Beaufort says, The culture seems to be obsessed now with tattoos and body piercings. 
What does the Bible say about these things? Are these sinful? Well, it's a good question, and there's really kind of two questions you need to ask when it comes to a tattoo question. Number one, is it beneficial? And number two, is it permissible? Uh, Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 10. So let me go to there uh, for this caller who's just dictated their question. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he makes this statement in verse 23, all things are lawful but not all things are profitable. So some things are, 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 are lawful. You can technically do that, but they're, but they're not always uh, profitable. Um, they don't always edify. They don't always build. And you need to ask that question about tattoos. Now, one of the arguments that people will use in favor of tattoos is they will turn to the chapter before that in 1 Corinthians 9 and uh, in verse uh, 20, well, verse 19, let me back it up. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. Into the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. Into those under the law as under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as those without law, those um, and then he, then he says, um, uh, to the weak, I became as the weak and so forth. I've become all things to all men. Why? That I might win some. So some would say, well, to those who have tattoos, I'll become like those who are tattoos and I might win those who have tattoos. Now, obviously the, the debate is not what, you know, if tattoos are allowable, certain kinds, because no one would say, well, uh, a tattoo of a naked woman you know, is a good tattoo. You know, Christians wouldn't debate that. But they might say, you know, the tattoo of a cross, you know, it could be a witnessing point. I might be able to win other people. Well, I would just say that if a person won't listen to you due to a lack of a tattoo, I doubt seriously they're going to listen to you if you have one. Uh, I don't think that's the kind of issue when you read this list in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul is dealing with. Um, to win those um, people to Christ. Now, look, a, a lot of people in our church have tattoos. Almost every Sunday we're doing a baptism, either one or both services. Some some weeks, you know, we have, we just did, I think, 12 a couple Sundays ago between the two services, or excuse me, eight. And, um, uh, and, and I see things as a pastor that maybe other people don't see. Tattoos on people's foot and you know, this one brother, Marine, he had this like wicked looking skull right in the middle of his chest. And thank God he found Christ as his savior. And as he grows and matures in Christ, he'll be embarrassed over that thing and wish he never had it. Um, maybe he'll use it as a reminder to his own children someday that, look, you don't want to do what dad did and so on. But um, here's the point is not all things are beneficial and constructive. But I think you also need to ask is, are they permissible? Are tattoos permissible? Well, well, one, there is a direct command uh, against tattoos in Leviticus chapter 19. Um, And there, let me see if I can find it here real fast. Um, He says in verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body. Um, for the dead, nor then he adds, uh, shall you make any tattoo or marks on yourself? I am the Lord. Now, some would say, well, you know, that's not really applicable to today. 
uh, that only applies to the ceremonial law. Well, you know, he he says um, here in the same section of Scripture, if there's a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. Oh, well, is that part of the ceremonial law? So in a few sermons I gave back recently, I talk about how do you distinguish between what's ceremonial and what's moral. Um, I, I don't think this is part of the ceremonial law. In fact, and then in the next verse, he talks about don't turn to mediums or spiritists. Um, I, I think he's talking about something here that is part of God's moral law. But even if you see it as part of God's ceremonial law, I would just ask you, is God really glorified by a tattoo in our day? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, not to mention in 1 Timothy 2.9, God says, for instance, in addressing women, and I think you can apply the principle to men as well, that a woman's dress and behavior and looks should be discreet and modest. And really what a tattoo does is it draws attention to you. And, uh, and that's what's really being spoken against in that, in, in that passage. Um, I think a lot of Christians who are trying to seek the Lord on this issue have some doubts and some struggles in their heart. Now, many people do it ever before they're converted, but a lot of Christians have some struggles in their heart. And I would just say, look, here's a good principle based on Romans fourteen twenty three: Whatever is not from faith is sin. If you can't do something in a clear conscience before God and you're really seeking him, then don't do it. And two, I think if you went to a lot of more mature Christians who have walked with God consistently, I'm not talking about some of these seeker-sensitive phonies in our day, but I'm talking about men who know the word of God, who passionately love Christ. I think you're going to get a unified counsel. Don't, Don't get the tattoo. And of course, when in doubt, don't do it. Cut it out. It's just not wise. Anyway, uh, that's a question that often comes in, but I appreciate this person calling today with that. Let's go to the next question, Rick. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7890, or you can email us at tbl at net. And uh, let me go ahead and get out of this and go to our next question from Edith in Wyndham, Maine. She writes, my pastor is strictly King James. I'm discouraged because I do not. My granddaughter does not have a clue as to what he's saying, so she doesn't come anymore. I own a new American standard, but feel wrong like I'm sneaking behind his back. Please tell me what version you use. Are other versions so wrong? I am 67, have read KJV all my life, but the word meanings have changed. But my pastor is not young, and young people are not coming. Well, I, I hear your your heart and your concern for your granddaughter here. Um, you say you use the New American Standard. I do as well. I, I think it's probably the most accurate literal translation that you can purchase in our day. The King James is an excellent translation, um, and it's a very literal translation, especially in the old King James in reflecting 17th century English. But there are a number of words, even in the what we call the old King James, in deference to the new King James that came out in the 1980s, where some of the words mean the exact opposite of what they mean today, or some of the words have a different shade of meaning than what they have today. And so a modern literal translation is really going to be very helpful to you. Now, sometimes I will quote the King James 
Why? Because sometimes there's not a single English word that will bring out the nuance really precisely. And sometimes on occasion, the King James is a little more literal or wooden. And this is always the challenge when you're going from the original language into the receptor language that you're translating it into to uh, be faithful to what God wrote in the original and yet where it's readable. And so you have translations like the NIV that put readability over literalness and they end up losing some of the fine points that God makes. Um, And now the new new NIV, not the NIV 84, but the NIV 2010 that came out in paper in 2011 They've actually altered a a number of texts, and they've made them gender sensitive. And so altering them, they've changed the meaning of them. So I I don't think that you you, you have to preach out of the New American Standard to make it understandable. Uh, We we play a a preacher here at 930 at night, Dr. Adrian Rogers, and, uh, you know, he grew up in the King James. He's dad and in heaven now, but he always used the King James version of the Bible and because that's what he grew up on. And um, when there was a difficult passage or a word that was maybe obscure or it changed its meaning, he highlighted that and brought it out so that someone without a King James background could could understand the meaning of it. But but why in our day uh, put it at hand's length, you know, the Bible, let's make it as understandable as we can. Um, I, I do a very detailed write up. Uh, if this person is interested in my bibliology course, in fact, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to have this. Uh, I'll we'll email this woman back, and we'll I'll get her physical address up there in Maine, and I'll send her section six of the course, where I do an evaluation of all the major English translations. One of the courses in the Institute of Biblical Studies that I've taught is called Bibliology, and section six is I go through all the different English translations, pros and cons, and you know, uh, issues in terms of what their philosophy of translation was as they approached the text. And um, so you want to, one, win your granddaughter Christ, make sure she's saved. You might want to have her listen with you. Would you like to have God as your friend? Because if she is born again, she will have an appetite for God's word. Uh, That's what a new Christian has. Like a baby, uh, we had a new granddaughter recently and she immediately wanted to eat. That's the way it is when you're saved. You want to eat the truth. You want to drink it up like a newborn babe. And so that's what we need to do. Anyway, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us today on The Bible Line. And I want to encourage you to read the Bible, the only book God ever wrote. As you read it and you seek the Lord, he'll speak to you. The scriptures are sufficient and he will help you to become the person in Jesus Christ that we all need to become. God bless you and have a great day as you walk with the Lord.